Welcome to season four. Our theme is themes. We're going to spend seven episodes digging into how to understand your client's work better. You know, being highly present in the moment is essential in play therapy. But when you shift to that analytical side of your brain and try to capture what happened for your progress notes, what do you write? How do you talk to your parents about the client's work while maintaining a safe space for their child's work? And probably the biggest question for new practitioners is, how do you look like a mental health professional when you spend a therapy session playing with kids? Oh sure, we know that play therapy works, but parents, supervisors, and other stakeholders may need more than that. And honestly, I need something more tangible than that. If you want to understand your clients better, sound intelligent when explaining play and therapy, and guide older clients to deeper wound healing, then you are going to love season four. This season, we are talking about themes in play therapy. Play themes give us a concrete way to conceptualize what the client is showing us, how they are progressing in treatment, and what needs they are trying to meet. It also gives you a framework for catching all the information that your client is tossing at you. So let's learn more about play themes together. Hello again. This is episode 25. I read somewhere that the average starting podcast only makes it nine episodes or less. So I am pretty excited to be recording episode 25. And I want to thank you for listening, for posting it to your social media, and for sharing it with your play therapy friends. Here's what about four of you have said uh, reviewing the podcast. Kay Walker 326 wrote, Quality Podcast. I loved how it was broken into parts, each serving a vital purpose and keeping me engaged in the whole episode. I love all things play therapy, and this is my new favorite podcast. I've shared with so many people already. Thank you, Kay Walker. Anna Joy Nelson wrote, I have absolutely loved this podcast. It is quickly becoming my favorite. I enjoy how each episode is broken down, informative, provides strategies, and new ideas. I also love the research section. I'm a learner, and I love soaking up new information. Truly inspired and motivated in my play therapy work with kiddos. And Gen Z Baby wrote, Simply Lovely. This podcast is a little sliver of happiness in my day. Dr. Thomas is a soothing interpreter of relevant content. I use this podcast as an opportunity to close my eyes, breathe, and absorb all the good info and good feels. Thank you for writing that. And finally, R. Elise wrote, Fantastic. This podcast is truly informational and research-based. A must-listen for play therapist. Thank you. Thank you to all of you who have posted these reviews and five stars and for uh, all the things that you have done to help new people in the play therapy community find us too. I mean it. Thank you. Now, let's get back to the reason you listen. This season, it's to learn more about thematic work. 
If you have just found us, you might want to listen to previous episodes this season to learn more about the core needs I use to macro-organize themes. The four core needs are safety and security, empowerment and control, inner value, and relationships. We're talking about relationship play themes today, and next time, our last podcast in the season, we'll talk about mastery themes that indicate that this layer of the client's work may be ending. Last week, we looked at the relational play themes of reparation, abandonment, separation, and integration. Today, I want to talk about grief, loss, and resilience. Now, remember, I'm talking about these through the context of relationship, but if you are using the core needs framework, be alert to other core needs that might be expressed. So let's begin with grief and loss. These two things are usually run together, but it might be helpful to recognize that they are different things. Grief is the mourning, the grieving of a loss. People grieve in different ways, but I generally see two broad categories. Those who grieve openly and socially, and those who retreat and grieve privately. Let me give an example to explain. When my brother was a junior in high school, he was playing around just wrestling with some friends, and he landed in such a way that he broke his neck, leaving him paralyzed from the chest down. Early one sunny Sunday morning, my grandparents called to give me the awful news. My grandmother got ready and went to church to be around friends that she knew would hug and support her. She needed that. My grandfather, uncharacteristically, stayed home because he needed to weep and pray alone. He needed that. What struck me was that after decades of marriage, they each honored the other's way of grieving without trying to get the other one to grieve the way they did. My brother's doing well now, but the experience taught me a lot about this. I am a private griever. I need to go in my cave, lick my wounds, and then when I'm ready, I'll come out and I'll engage with others. What kind of griever are you? Grief is, of course, mourning when people die. But it is more complex than that. You know, we also grieve the loss of our hopes and dreams. Our family had to let go of many hopes and dreams. My brother would never walk again. He would not get that football scholarship to college. And at the time, we didn't know if he would even graduate from high school. We mourned over his pain, the injustice of an accident, and significant life events that were forced to be different from here on. There are often dozens of little griefs that are felt around one major grief event. This is where identifying losses comes in. The loss is what we grieve. But again, although it can be a person, it also might be less tangible. The coronavirus pandemic is a good example of degrees of loss. A couple of months back when I was feeling low and I was having a difficult time figuring out why, I created a list of losses from COVID. I knew I was grieving, but because I haven't experienced the death of someone close to me, um, I couldn't quite pinpoint what was going on. Some of you have lost someone close to you, and I am truly sorry for that. 
My losses weren't through burial, but I did involuntarily lose living the way I knew and the way I liked. I couldn't teach the way I wanted, see my colleagues in the hallways, or even grab a coffee with a friend anymore. And nearly nine months later, that is still limited. I couldn't see a friendly face while trying to buy enough rationed tomatoes at Aldi to make spaghetti sauce. My skills of planning ahead and being productive at new things weren't as valued anymore. Instead, I was expected to be highly adaptable and flexible with change, things that I'm not very good at. The losses keep coming, but nowadays they are more subtle. I miss the Association for Play Therapy Conference and seeing people I only ever see there. In comparison with my colleague's daughter getting hospitalized with the virus, it's a small loss. But the loss is real, and the losses keep accumulating. So let's talk about resilience now. My dissertation study was on the topic of resilience and protective factors in children of divorce. One of my findings was so obvious that I almost didn't include it. And yet, it really is important. Here it is. Without adversity, there is no resilience. Without adversity, there is no resilience. We tend to want the benefits of resilience without the pain of adversity. But you have to grow it by working through whatever the adversity is. That is what we are hoping to help our clients do. When you see your clients playing out themes of resilience, you're seeing evidence of progress. You are seeing evidence of the client's developed resources and strengths. With older clients, you may be seeing them making sense of suffering. Resilience is the recognition that while it was a terrible, hard thing, she now has gratitude for what she has become. This theme includes play around overcoming, defeating the bad guy, and accomplishing a hard thing. And speaking of resilience, I wonder what Rachel has found for our libraries this week. Back by popular demand, Rachel Sellers offers summaries of the literature that shape our profession. This season, she has selected seven essential books for every play therapist library. Rachel works in private practice and is experienced with children and adolescents using play therapy. Let's hear which book she has selected this week. Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson are names that might ring a bell. Among many other things, they are the authors of one of my favorite books about parenting and child development, The Whole Brain Child, 12 Revolutionary Strategies to Nurture Your Child's Developing Mind. The authors of this book explain and make accessible the new science of how a child's brain is formed and how it grows. They offer amazing illustrations, diagrams, and examples of how to implement these strategies. On the back of the book's cover, Daniel Goleman writes, 
Anyone who cares for children or who loves a child should read this book, and I couldn't agree more. I think this book is especially helpful to recommend to the parents and families whose children are in therapy. It unpacks the science behind tantrums and meltdowns, allowing parents to use these moments as opportunities for learning, integration, and brain growth. Siegel and Bryson use the word integration to describe the importance of giving children experiences that help them connect the various parts of their brains, including the right and left and the upstairs and downstairs. The upstairs brain, the authors explain, is the most mature part of the brain, the part of the brain that engages in analytical, higher-order thinking and isn't fully developed until about 25 years old. The downstairs brain is responsible for basic functions like breathing and blinking and impulses like fight or flight. The authors posit that what is ideal for optimal development and what leads to ideal behavior is when the upstairs and downstairs and the left and right parts of the brain are working together, achieving a state of integration. Why? So that they can use their mental resources to full capacity and experience good mental health. The authors also speak to the consequences of having a poorly integrated brain or a brain that relies too much on only one part. They describe how this can lead to either rigidity or chaos, two different extremes. They talk about the many challenges that parents face are during times when their kids are feeling too chaotic or too rigid. The authors offer this example to help explain these concepts. Your three-year-old won't share his toy boat at the park? This is rigidity. He erupts into crying, yelling, and throwing sand when his new friend takes his toy away? This becomes chaos. The strategies in this book are all about guiding children back into an integrated state to avoid both chaos and rigidity and to promote mental and emotional health. What I love about their approach is the way that they offer scripts and visuals for parents or therapists to use to help explain to kids how their brain functions. There is even a script that walks a child through understanding how implicit memory works, which can be such a helpful way of helping kids understand where their fears may come from. I'm currently in a season of life where several of my closest friends are having babies. Because of the nature of my work, many of them have already asked me for parenting book suggestions, and to be really honest, this one, along with the connected child, are always the first two that come to mind. Children's play, when it is about parents and caretakers, may be challenging to talk about with those parents and caretakers. Besides the fact that legal guardians have a right to know what is happening with their child, these are also your best allies in your work. In fact, the research indicates that filial play therapy, when parents spend time using play therapy skills with their children, that filial play therapy is more effective than when we, the professionals, do it. So don't miss that as a way to help the children you see. Still, it is awkward and potentially trust eroding for the client 
when we talk to parents about their child's experience of hurting. Themes give you the language to help parents understand what the child needs. When you tell mom, Johnny played with the puppets today. The mommy and the daddy had a loud argument. You are just describing the behaviors. Mom is likely to feel embarrassed or maybe ashamed, and so she might respond defensively or even try to evade it. Well, he must have seen that on television. If you instead talk about themes, though, it, get, it helps you to explain what is important without any sense of accusation. Here's an example. Today, Johnny worked on a couple of themes that might help you understand some of the outbursts you've been noticing. His play today was working on the themes of reparation and abandonment. It, it seems that when you fight, he really has a need to see you make up, but also to know that his relationship with you is okay. One of his fears is that he will be left behind if one or both of you leave. Have you noticed any of that with him? The idea is to focus on the child's experience of the event instead of on the fighting, which is the event in this case. It may also help you to suggest or prompt something helpful that the mom can do. So maybe she can assure Johnny that she still loves him even when the parents fight. Or she can just make a point to notice his response. Even if the parents aren't going to make up with each other, they can be intentional about repairing the relationship with the child. And see what an ally can do for therapy? Of course, I know that parents can be really challenging for those of us that work with kids. It's even harder when we blame the parents. And honestly, sometimes we are right. Sometimes parents really are hurting their children. And on occasion, there are some that hurt their children with intention. I am aware of that. But if you want to create a healthier environment for your child clients, your consultations with the parents might be your most important conversations. And identifying play themes gives you a way to do this. A big thank you for the kind words to those who've taken time to review our little podcast. I'm so glad that you find it helpful and inspiring. For those of you that haven't done so yet, please join these gracious reviewers by taking two minutes to give us five stars or whatever you think is honest, but those are our favorites. Also write a sentence or two to let us know what you liked best in this podcast. This helps others find us when they search. You can also share it on your social media, too. I hope this episode helped you better understand and conceptualize what your clients tell you through the themes of their play. Let us know what you thought. Contact us at playtherapypodcast at gmail.com and visit our website at playtherapypodcast.org. You can also follow me on Instagram at playtherapy with Dr. Denise. Remember, I don't have an E at the end of Denise. Thanks to all you subscribers in our playful tribe. We wouldn't do this without you or the incredible talents of book reviewer Rachel Sellers, audio engineer Sheldon Clark, production assistant Kara Allison, and songwriter Sarah Beth Go. This podcast is funded through the Lipscomb University Center for Play Therapy and Expressive Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Denise Thomas. 
Now go play, create, and heal. You've got so much to say And not a lot of words I'll come along and believe That your song isn't broken Soon you're going to see That you've got what you need To sing Isn't broken. Soon you're going to see.